Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlesbacher, founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. Excited that you've joined me today. Thank you again to all those who've done reviews on our podcast and who have shared it out with friends and family. We're excited to be growing in the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group. We'd love for you to join us there where we discuss these podcasts. And like I've been saying lately, we'll have even more stuff coming up in that Facebook group. So you're really going to want to be there and invite your friends and really going to start ramping it up and becoming more mission driven moms. So we're excited for that. I get to talk to you today about a woman that I didn't know about when I was younger. I stumbled upon her story a few years ago and did a little research and was able to find the first biography that was written of her right after her passing. And I'll talk to you in a minute about um, how that book came to be written. But I've been kind of making my way through it slowly over the last few months and just really love this woman and respect her so much. I want to kind of open up Dorothea Dix's story with a couple of quotes from her. So from the beginning, you kind of get a sense of the caliber of woman that we're talking about. At one point, she said, uh, she wrote a letter to a friend named Annie. And both of these stories have to do with the tremendous physical suffering she had, especially in her younger years. She was sick a lot and pushed through these struggles to still accomplish great things in this physical pain. And one of the things that she said to her friend Annie about this pain was, the hour of bodily suffering is to me the hour of spiritual joy. It is then that most I feel my dependence on God and his power to sustain. That is a depth of closeness to God and um, spirituality that I really hope to achieve someday. It's so inspiring that in her hour of trial, she could see that it was an opportunity to draw closer to God and to see her dependence on him. And for that reason, it was joyful for her. And I think that we all can learn from that. She also wrote to this friend, Annie, about one night when she was particularly ill. She said, Last night I could not sleep, and after several restless hours, rose at one o'clock, wrapped myself warmly in my flannel gown, and was in search of my medicine, when the remarkable clearness of the sky drew me to my window. There was Orion, with his glittering sword and jeweled belt, the fiery eye of Taurus, she goes on to talk about some of the other constellations that she loves and says, And thousands on thousands of starry lamps lent their brightness to light up the vast firmament that canopied the silent earth. Silent for sleep had exerted its restoring influence upon all, save the sick and sorrowing. So everyone was asleep, but people like her that were sick or, sor or sorrowing. I turned reluctantly again to seek my weary couch with feelings of gratitude to my God for all his past goodness and humble trust in his future care, I laid my head on my pillow and though I could not sleep, could meditate. So that's the kind of woman that we're talking about and I think you will be 
very inspired by the way she lived her life and the kinds of things that she did. And of course, her life, again, beautifully reflects those seven laws of life mission that are discussed more thoroughly in the Mission Driven Life book. Um, And I do want to just mention here, if you don't have an an audio copy of that, I'd run over and get it soon. We're going to probably discontinue that in the next little while. So uh, grab that now so you can listen to that. But Let's get into the story of Dorothea Dix because it's really phenomenal. Now, I mentioned earlier that it was tough to get a biography of her written, and this was because she was very against having a biography written of her. She, of course, never wrote an autobiography. And her biographer, Francis Tiffany, uh, I'm pretty sure he knew her and wanted a biography written, but she refused Um she was constantly trying to give her life over to God and to follow God. And about the last thing she wanted was to be a public figure. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But she simply wanted to help people. She didn't want to be celebrated. And um, when her biographer was writing about this, he said, the invincible obstacle lay in her positive refusal to permit anything to be written of her so um, she had previously issued positive commands to her many friends to destroy her own private letters. A few of these friends happily refused to obey her injunction and to their pious care for her memory, it is alone due that any vivid picture can at this date be drawn of her. So she... And in fact, I I don't have it written down here, but at one point she said, you know, women should not follow my example. They should get married and and raise families (laughs) because she knew that was a righteous endeavor and also a service to God. But she knew what kind of pain and suffering she'd been through. Um, She never did marry or have children of her own. One thing she did say is, I feel it right to say to you, frankly, that nothing could be undertaken when she's talking about a biography of herself, nothing could be undertaken which would give me more pain and serious annoyance, which would so trespass on my personal rights or interfere more seriously with the real usefulness of my mission. I am not ambitious of nominal distinctions and notoriety is my special aversion. My reputation and my services belong to my country. So she did not want this written. But they were able to get a hold of some letters. They were able to interview quite a few people still living who knew her. She lived to be 85. So, um, and that that was quite old in this time. And so there were quite a few people who had passed away, but they interviewed all that they could. And it's to this author's credit that he made this such a huge priority. So Dorothea Dix's story begins with her grandfather, Dr. Elijah Dix. He was born in 1747 in Massachusetts. He was a druggist and a self-made man. I don't know that he was to the level of a millionaire, but he was very successful. And in fact, he went on to found two towns. This is kind of telling about him. He called the towns Dixmont and Dixfield. (laughs) So he was uh, proud of his accomplishments, although a good man and a generous man. His wife, Madame Dix, was a typical example of a New England Puritan gentlewoman of the period. So here's some characteristics you could expect from women like Madame Dix, this grandmother who played an influential role in Dorothea's life. 
at life. Dignified, precise, inflexibly conscientious, unimaginative, and without a trace of emotional glow or charm. <laughs> it was a grim and joyless home. So that's, um, you know, there was a lot of respect for duty and, um, and being upright and pious and doing what was right and diligence and hard work all of those things were very highly respected and taught to to children and grandchildren and so um that's the way that the upbringing that that children had at that time and she was very typical of the kind of women that would have raised children that way which produced men and women of high productivity and duty that were that did what they were supposed to do to a large degree. So you can't knock it too much, you know? Anyway, Dorothea is, do is born April 4th, 1802 in Maine. And she's born to the son of, of Dr. Elijah Dix and Madam Dix. And, you know, I don't know a lot about his history. The book doesn't go into a lot of detail. She never talked about him a lot. But just based on the kind of behavior he, it, he showed, I would guess he may have really been mentally ill to the tune of perhaps, um, you know, bipolar disorder or something along those lines because his behavior was very outside the realm of normal. And Dorothea came to see that. So one of the, one of the tendencies of her father, he was a, of an unstable and wandering turn of mind. He really had an instability of character. You really couldn't count on him. And one of his abnormal tendencies was that he would go into this state of fanatical religious excitement. And this kind of reminds me of kind of that mantic state. I mean, I'm not a psychologist. I don't have a lot of experience, but the little that I know, and I, I do, I do have friends who who suffer from this, and so I know a little bit about it. Anyway, I'm not trying to make a diagnosis. I'm just saying, this was a very hard situation for Dorothea to be, and so he would he would get this fanatical religious excitement, and he would become wholly engrossed in writing and issuing tracts. Now he was convinced that these spiritual tracts were of the utmost important to, importance to the world's salvation. And it was so important that it outweighed every other responsibility in his mind. And so he stopped providing for his family. He stopped taking care of their education. He just didn't do anything else. He was just in this fanatical state of mind. And this would go on for long periods of time and they would very, they would really, really suffer. Now, what made it even worse for Dorothea was she, but you know, by the time she was 12, she had gone through this process many times, this um, behavior of her father's. And what he would do is force her to paste and stitch these tracks together and then to go out and deliver them in the community. And by the time she was 12, she had a younger brother that was like 10 years younger than her. And by the time she was 12, she was like, I cannot do this. I will never make it in the world. I've, I've got to do something about the situation. And it's absolutely amazing to me that given this kind of background, now certainly she knew her grandparents and maybe she had been exposed to a different way of life that gave her a little bit of 
encouragement, but she always from a very young age was very strong-willed in the in the very best way. We talk about in the academy the difference between being willful and willing and definitely willing to to submit to God and and do what was right by, you know, his laws and and principles, but very strong-willed, very determined, um, very diligent, very hardworking. And so she's not, she doesn't want to tolerate this anymore. So she runs away from home and she goes to Boston where her grandmother is. Her grandfather's passed and her grandmother is there and is willing to take her in and help her become educated. But her grandmother is a realist and her grandmother says to her, look, you're going to have to take on the maintenance of your younger brother. And within some period of time after she's there, another brother is born. So she has these two younger brothers that are 10 plus years younger than her. And both she and her grandmother just believe that it's going to be her responsibility to provide for them because her parents don't. Now, it's really pretty silent on her mother. I don't know what her mother was doing. But um, she submits to this education. She's just grateful to be there. Her grandmother is relentless in the what she requires of Dorothea. She's very exacting. She teaches her to sew to a level that's just um, would kind of send many of us over the top for the the exactness that she demanded. But Dorothea later in life was very grateful for that. She felt that her grandmother's training had developed certain faculties in her and skills in her that came to her aid later in life. She was eager for knowledge and ambitious for a more refined and intellectual social opportunities. She was self-reliant from a young age, had an indomitable nature, and felt that living with this grandmother was the only opportunity she had to secure an education for herself, which was the only way she'd be able to to take care of herself because her father wasn't going to get that for her. And so she very early in life, um, it says, loaded down already with a premature sense of responsibility, thus early had the iron entered her soul and the conviction, conviction been developed in her of the reality and sharpness of the battle of life. And so she was willing to do whatever she needed to do to get this education and to care for herself. In fact, she later said often, I never knew childhood. She never really had a time in her life when she was carefree and didn't feel like she had the worries of the world on her shoulders, which is sad, um, but also made her a certain kind of person that allowed her to do what she did later on. So to become independent of means, to educate herself, for a position that would command respect and would bring her in income so she could care for her younger brothers was the purpose of her life. And she had a thirst for knowledge and a longing to direct, uh, to, to exert direct moral influence on others. So teaching was the perfect uh, career for her and her talents and abilities went that way. So it was perfect. And she studied hard for two years. <laughs> this part of the story is absolutely mind-blowing to me because she studies for two years and then guess what she does? She's 14 years old. Um, she's born in 1802. So yeah, she's between the ages of 14 and 15 and she opens a school. <laughs> absolutely unbelievable to me. You know, people are so capable of so much more than we think they are. Um, and not everybody could do this when they were 14, even back then, but I'm just saying, 
uh, we really can do more than we think that we can. And, and she looked really young. So she tried, you know, she put her hair up and she wore long skirts and tried to make her the sleeves of her dresses longer just so she would look older, so she would kind of command respect. So she did that for a year. It went okay. Um, but she realized that she wanted to teach older students and she wanted to be able to teach more mature subjects. And so she um, submitted herself to four years of really serious study of a classical education. And um, I don't know if she did some teaching on the side during this time as well, but mostly from ages about 15 to 19, most of her time was spent in serious deep study and training. She was fond of responsibility and she had this fire of an ideal, they had this ideal teacher in her mind that she wanted to become and wanted to do the best by the students that would that she would teach. So I want to kind of pause there and tell some of the pieces of her story thus far and the rest of her story from the viewpoint of the seven laws of life mission because because her story so perfectly fits around those laws and it's even easier to see the process that she went through by looking at it through the lens of those laws so clearly she was very serious about her love of god i mean just from the first quotes that I gave you from her life, her devotion to God was very complete. From an early age, she was studying scripture. She was always a regular church attender in the Unitarianist church um, when, it was, when it was younger. She always was willing to obey God's laws, which we'll talk about in just a minute with, with the um, law three. But there's some quotes from the book that, that really demonstrate this love of God that she had. Um, in her, in her teaching, the main stress was laid on the formation of moral and religious character. That's where she was always making connections for the students and utilizing biblical teachings and prayer and all of those sources to try to buoy up the children's character. And I'll give you more details about some of the things that um, she did. So for example, one of the things that she did when she was teaching, she started teaching again in this new school at 19. She, had, she started up this thing where she wanted the students to become better at really understanding the good and bad inside themselves so that they could listen more closely to their consciences and submit to what was good rather than what was evil. And so she had this box that she put on the, I think on the fireplace mantle or something, and it had a little slit in the top. And she encouraged the students to write her letters each night of self-examination. And they would exchange letters back and forth on a very personal one-on-one -on -one level and not face-to-face, -face, just through letter writing. And these students could open up their hearts to her and talk to her about moral, religious struggles, about internal struggles with themselves, self-discipline and self-love and whatever those things were. And she would write back to them words of encouragement. It was really a tender exchange. And many of the students really, really loved it and were grateful for it. In fact, they interviewed the students that were still living when they were writing this biography. And it said um, they were um, spiritually revolutionized by these sessions, by this letter exchange. 
and that to her they said they owed the best that they had ever done in life because she early trained their consciences and their ability to understand themselves and to better submit to what was right and best in themselves. So I just thought that was so beautiful how she was living law one in that way. With law two, of course, this is love of self. Um, I mentioned that when she was young, she struggled with her health a lot. And she learned to take better and better care of herself. She loved to go on long walks and call attention to things in nature. She engaged in a lot of self-discovery. She came to see that she loved natural history and um, for a time was an active student of that, which um, is more along the lines of laws three and four, but she discovered that she absolutely loved teaching, loved natural history, and had this burning desire to serve God, to concentrate her, herself and her life to the relief of human suffering. When she went to live in St. Croix, the warm climate and the lazy lifestyle started to kind of take hold of her and she exerted herself against that and wrote letters about how she needed to overcome herself and, and developed great amounts of self-discipline. She said she was triumphing over the tropical languor. And so she really developed self-discipline in that way. She learned her boundaries and her self-care so that her health was better um, a little bit later on and she could better care for herself and her physical needs. And she came to see over time that she was a, a gifted writer. She practiced her writing skills and her writing was a huge part of her influence over others later on. And she also grew in her leadership skills and was a, a very powerful leader, two leaders. And I have about a great quote about that in a minute, but that love of self, she came to really, you know, and it wasn't about her. She wouldn't have talked about it that way. She wouldn't even have told you that she was even thinking about herself. She just knew that she needed to care for herself so she could do God's work. And she knew what she was good at. And she continued to develop those gifts and then use them in God's service. So that love of self was, was really there. She had a, a good, healthy respect for herself and her talents. And she, she did hard things. And she, I mean, stood up in front of a class of students at 14. <laughs> so she had to have confidence um, in her abilities as well. In Law 3, she definitely lived principles. I'll give you some examples. Um, she had a mind long strained to the highest tension in the pursuit of moral ideals. She was always very tuned in to moral principles and her moral standards were powerfully asserting themselves in her life. These are quotes from the book about the moral principles that she always adhered to and the self-discipline she always had around those. She achieved um, financial independence for herself. We can tell that she lived principles of hard work, of submission to God. She lived financial principles very well and was able to help care for those younger brothers the way that she wanted to. Also, um, it mentioned this in the book, from the outset she showed herself a superior business manager because she had to run these schools and she was also very generous. There's some really cool things that happened when she was running this school at 19. She established the school and she ran it at kind of as a business and was able to make it successful. And then it, it said she was very generous to the last extreme, extreme, her school always containing a number of non-paying pupils. She lived principles of friendship, of teaching, of service, of generosity, of leadership. Principles were a key element of her life, God's laws, and she was always striving to submit to those. 
in that time when she was teaching, there's a really sweet story too in terms of her love of humanity in Law 4. And the classical education, I mean, in fact, there are those three principles are executed really beautifully there in that time period. First, with Law 4, getting that classical education that she needed, and then her love of humanity. After she'd established the school and was teaching along with the students, she, um, she wrote a letter to her grandmother because they had this barn and it wasn't being used for anything. And so she wrote this really heartfelt letter to her grandmother asking her to please let her use it for a charity school. So she was going to teach during the day in a school that she'd established for paying pupils. And then she wanted to spend some, quote, spare time running a school for the poor. And she says to her um, grandmother, uh, I want to do good to the poor, the miserable, the idle, and the ignorant which would follow, you're giving me permission to use the barn chamber for a schoolroom for charitable and religious purposes. And then she says, you have read Hannah Moore's life. You approve of her labors for the most degraded of England's paupers. And I love that little insertion because I already knew that she read the greats and was very inspired by them, but she defers to the story of a great. Her mother has read about this woman, Hannah Moore, who led a, a, a life of mission, and she wants to remind her grandmother that she's trying to do good for the poor in the way these other mission-driven individuals have done to influence her grandmother to let her use that room, which is so sweet. And um, her grandmother does give her permission to do that. Um, she says, let me rescue some of America's miserable children from vice and guilt. Do my dear grandmother yield to my request. So that was a really sweet letter that shows what she's doing in, in these experiences, when her health breaks down, she continues on in her self-education in this um, Law 3 and 4, learning more true principles, um, gaining this education, these three things, for sure, you know, this learning from the greats and getting a classical education and this love of humanity. So I want to give you a couple examples of in these years into, you know, in, in her late teen years and into her 20s, she goes to live in St. Croix for a year, and not only does she continue to study natural history and continue her self-education there, but she gains a love for all people, this love of humanity that we uh, want to experience in Law 4 in, in a couple really sweet ways. One is that even though she lives in the North and there's not slavery there, she's always been against slavery, and she's only had contact with um, blacks in America of, of a certain caliber, really ex-slaves. And so she had kind of had certain opinions. I mean, not bad opinions. She, she cared about them, but it was amazing to her to go to St. Croix and to see these black people. In fact, she has some really beautiful things to say about them. She says, in general, they're handsome, much above the generality of the white. So th she thinks they're more beautiful than white people. They're very fine figures, graceful beyond anything I have ever seen. Their voices and conversation are musical and their manners respectful. Sometimes their accents, especially of the children, are soft and plaintive, plaintive touching the heart. For all of this, they are in reality cheerful and happy. She really, really loved them. And she eventually went to Europe and came to know people from all over the world. And she really did have this genuine love of all peoples. 
she did something else I thought was so incredibly cool, which we do in level three of the academy, and that was study worldviews and world religions. She read from the religious tracts of uh, one of the some of the ones that it specifically mentions in the book are the Hindu, the Persian, the Greek, and Christian sources. And in fact, she, it talks about how she diligently wrote out full tracts from the saints and sages of all periods and lands, and from whose words. Uh, from whose words bore on the rightly conducted human life. So she's studying all these world religions and she's copying large sections of from things that she loves and seeing those harmonious natural laws and first principles in all these religions and faiths and cultures and seeing the uniformity of truth and, you know, loving people of all places and times. And then it goes on to say in the book that she loved the witness of the spirit in whatsoever land or under whatsoever dispensation it was breathed abroad. And so uh, I just absolutely loved that. So she's had all these experiences. She's been a leader. She's opened up two different schools, done a charity school. Her health broke down because she totally stretched herself too thin. She had to retract a little and learn how to care for herself a little bit better. Living these four laws of, of mission, she felt calls certainly along the way to open schools to care for her younger brothers, answering those calls, fine-tuning her skills. And then she has a couple really cool experiences that come in her in her 30s. So she's had all these experiences. And um, one last thing I want to mention about Law 4, before I forget about this love of humanity, is that she had a good deal of social intercourse with people of intellectual and moral superiority. So now she's been become comfortable with people of all financial strata. Um, she loves people of all races, of all intellectual backgrounds, all income levels, all religions. So, so beautiful, so perfect, so, so primed to do a great work for God. So um, when she's 35, her grandmother dies and and gives her an inheritance. And she had been so good when she ran her schools and had saved back money and been so careful and lived those financial and business principles so well that with this inheritance and the money that she had saved, she was now financially independent. If she lived carefully and frugally, she was taken care of for the rest of her life. And the author goes on to say, you know, she was made the mistress of her own time. Here she is at 35 with this incredible, you know, experiences behind her and incredible education and she could have just done whatever she wanted she could have just enjoyed the company of good people she could have done good things you know i mean not bad things but just kind of selfish things just kind of lazed around just kind of enjoyed her time continued to study and perfect her talents and all those kinds of things but she said this in a letter but there are duties to be performed Life is not to be expended in vain regrets. No day, no hour comes, but brings in its train work to be performed for some useful end. The suffering to be comforted, the wandering led home, the sinner reclaimed. And um, she, she goes on to say, Oh, how can any fold the hands to rest and say to the spirit, Take thine ease for all is well. Because she knew all wasn't well. And she wanted to be of use to humankind in whatever way she could. So she devoted herself in a new, even more full way to, to helping God. So 
within a couple years of this experience, she's still giving, teaching, doing good things in the world. And she has this experience. This woman actually wrote a letter about what happened because it was the catalyst for Dorothea's work. So this woman tells the story of how she was kind of the catalyst for Dorothea Dix's work. So she was, she was in Ace Cambridge and there was a house of correction and she was in charge of the Sunday school instruction for the female inmates of this basically prison. There were about uh, 20 of them, she said, and they needed a teacher and this woman decided it shouldn't be a man, it should be a woman. So she went and talked to her mom and she was like, well, who do you think we should get? And her mom said, you should ask Miss Dix. She's really wise and she might have a good suggestion. And so she goes to Dorothea and she tells her about these, these women and Dorothea thinks about it and she says, I will take them myself. And she still kind of has fragile health and this woman protests a little bit. She's like, you know, are you really up for it? And she says, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go teach this, I'll be there next Sunday. So she goes to the, to the jail and she f- sees among the prisoners a few insane women and she talks to them and she notices that there's no stove in the room and there's no way for these women to warm themselves. And the jailer said, oh, they're insane. They don't need to be, they don't need warmth. And if we put a fire in here for them, it wouldn't be safe. They would hurt themselves. And I mean, maybe they would have, I don't know. The jailer thought that was the case. So Dorothea doesn't think this is okay. She feels very passionately about the fact that these people need to not be in the freezing cold. I mean, they're in Massachusetts. It's, it's cold there in the winter. And so she keeps asking and asking, asking and asking, and they keep turning her down. So finally, she finds out that the East Cambridge court was in session and she manages to get the case brought before them and her request was granted and the cold rooms were warmed. And this just lit a fire under her. And she just started on her great work after this. I mean, she'd already had influence on a lot of people, you know, students and other, you know, men and women. She was already a good woman who had done really good things for God. But now she said um, she felt like the spirit was saying, whoa, whoa, if thou does not champion these outcasts and miserable ones. So she lovingly resigned herself and her shrouded future into the hands of God while her heart overflowed with gratitude. So she hears this call. She knows that she needs to do something for the suffering insane. And so she begins this work. What's the first thing that she does? She studies the whole question of insanity. In fact, these are the things that the author said she studied. Its origin, its stages of development, its relations of body and mind, its treatment, its legal and moral rights, to put herself abreast with the most advanced thought on the subject. Then she devoted two full years. She had a notebook in her hand, and she started out on her voyage of exploration, and she went to every jail and every almshouse in the Massachusetts area, pretty much. And... It was really fascinating because she kind of was a nobody. She wasn't like an official, because there were sometimes like officials that would come and go through and and um, check up on things and stuff like that. But she was just this woman who wanted to see around and would take notes. And so she got to see everything. And she took all kinds of notes. And in fact, there were a few times when influential people saw what she saw. And so she had a backup when people were questioning her later on. 
So after two years, she had this massive eyewitness testimony to how appallingly these insane people were being treated. They were being denied food. They were being locked up in solitary confinement. They were being kept in barns, in closets. They weren't even, their hygiene wasn't taken care of at all in some cases. I mean, this wasn't everybody all the time, but there were a lot, a lot, a lot of cases like this that were just absolutely heartbreaking. And I won't get into a lot of detail. You can go um, search those out. So she decides what she's going to do is memorialize the legislature of Massachusetts. So she writes up this big, long memorial where she shares these first-hound accounts, and she asks the legislature to do something for these insane poor. She says, truth is the highest consideration. I tell what I have seen. She writes that at the beginning of her memorial. Now, inevitably, the memorial, such as this, uh, struck and exploded like a bombshell. <laughs> That's how the author described it. And they couldn't believe what they were reading. They couldn't believe these things really went on. And she had to call on influential men to back her up. And she had um, friends in the legislature who helped present this and help put bills forward to, um, to try to amend the situation in some way. And in fact, a man, Dr. Howe, who's one of her friends helping her in this work, wrote to her and, and said, a friend overheard one of the men who, who said he was, um, he was sympathetic to their cause. He said that to their face. But somebody overheard him saying, we must find some way to kill this devil of a hospital bill. So they don't want to have to deal with this. They don't want to believe it's true. They don't want to have to do anything about it. And and uh, one of the influential men that she was working with recommended, this is so brilliant, recommended that she write and submit articles to local newspapers. Then the people could read about it and encourage their representatives to do something about it and kind of work from the back end that way. And it worked marvelously. In fact, she hated uh, speaking, public speaking. She never went out into public. Um, she was trying to lead the leaders from the backside by having influential men that she converted to her cause by meeting with them one-on-one -on -one and sharing this calling that she felt called to and letting sensibility and reason work on their minds until they were convinced that she was right and they needed to do something. So triumphantly, the bill was passed. Um, I think it's fascinating that she worked by studying, researching, writing, and then having one-on-one -on -one influence. Such incredible leadership skills. So then Law 7, you know, of course with Law 5, she finished her preparations. With Law 6, she courageously executed. You know, she had a lot of people trying to stop her. She had to push for quite a long time. I can't remember how long it took, how many months or a year or two. To get this through the Massachusetts legislature, she never gave up. She got the bill passed. And then the immensity of the work opened up to her. She had already crossed over state lines and been to other hospitals in other states and realized, oh, this is not just a problem here. This is a problem all over the United States. And so the conviction thus steadily and irresistibly forced on her that all over the United States, from Maine to Florida, from Atlantic to the Mississippi, the same appalling story held true of the wretch fate of the pauper, pauper insane. Um, if one legislature can thus be besieged and carried by storm, why not another and another and another? And then the length and breadth of the mission to which she felt herself divinely called 
resolutely and untiringly state by state would she take up the work for the insane poor across the country and eventually the world. And so she devoted the rest of her life to being a voice, not in a public forum, but through her writing and through her influence on the leaders, getting to know people in positions of leadership and wealthy people who could donate and appealing to them and winning them over. Um, she really represented the insane poor incredibly and did so much good for so many hundreds of thousands of people, uh, the insane and their families. Across the United States, she eventually, um, she was trying to get a land grant for 12 million acres to be donated. That got killed, so she went to Europe and did a lot of work there. One cool thing, she met with Pope Pius uh, IX who personally ordered construction of a new hospital for the mentally ill after hearing her reports. And she did some work in the Civil War as well uh, with nurses and then went back to her work for the, for the mentally ill. So that is the incredible work of Dorothea Dix that is so incredibly inspiring. And you know, as I was reading through this book and thinking about these experiences, my daughter's in a class at a local college and they're doing history and so sadly it's cold dry facts this person this thing this person this thing and the richness and the depth of why they did what they did has totally been removed from that educational experience and i just want to reinsert it wherever i can and encourage you to insert it with your with your families and your children dorothea dix would never have been the woman that she was she would never have done the work that she did had she not felt called by God and had she not loved God so deeply and intensely and want to make her life matter. She said that knowledge was only good to the degree that we use it to benefit and serve humanity. And so I, I really believe that as well. And I really love her for the work that she did and the example that she set. Her story is such a rich example of the good that can be done when we live these seven laws and dedicate ourselves to listening to the calls that God has for us and answering with courage and faith. Thanks so much for joining me. Again, if you don't have that uh, copy of the audiobook, The Mission Driven Life, head over there and get that before that becomes discontinued. And please join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group and continue these conversations and more Facebook Lives we'll have uh, for you in the future and become part of our community of Mission Driven Moms learning and living these seven laws of life mission. See you next time.